Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont+. All right, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I am here in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. Wherever you are, let's do some craft work. Today on the program, my guest is Gina Frangello, an old friend of mine. We have known each other a long time. Gina was the first fiction editor at thenervousbreakdown.com many years ago. She is the author of four books of fiction as well as the memoir Blow Your House Down, a story of family, feminism, and treason. That one was published by Counterpoint Press in 2021. I spoke with Gina on this very podcast in episode 700 back in April of 2021, if you want to check that out. Gina's novels include A Life in Men, which came out on Algonquin in 2014, and another novel, called Every Kind of Wanting, published by Counterpoint in 2016. Gina Frangello is a writer whom I consider to be flagrantly talented. She is also tireless as a writer, as an editor, as an advocate. She is a very gifted, very powerful, very lyrical writer who can really sing on the page, if that's a way I can put it. She makes it seem easy. And she's also a very good editor, having worked, as I said, at The Nervous Breakdown, but also uh, as the founder of an independent press called Other Voices Books. 
Additionally, she has served as the Sunday editor for The Rumpus and as the faculty editor for both Triquarterly Online and the Coachella Review. She has published essays and short fiction all over the place, and she has taught at the college level for more than two decades. Along with uh, her partner, Emily Rapp Black, Gina Frangello is the co-founder of Circe Consulting, which offers a variety of services to writers, including manuscript consultation, developmental editing, editorial coaching, collaborative ghostwriting, creativity coaching, life coaching, you name it. So if you want to check out their full slate of offerings, just go to circeconsulting.net. That's Circe, C-I-R-C-E, consulting.net. So today on the program, Gina Frangello and I are going to be talking in depth about point of view and what it means for a piece of writing. We will be exploring, as you're about to hear, all of the major POVs available to writers. And in particular, Gina will be focusing on the editorial omniscient point of view, which is not commonly used, especially among American writers, and is often misunderstood if it is understood at all. So I have to be honest, I learned a lot from this conversation, in particular about the editorial omniscient POV, which to get nerdy about it is a very cool POV. You can do a lot with it. So a deep dive into point of view with Gina Frangello is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of the novel Community Board by best-selling author Tara Conklin that is due out on March 28th, 2023. It's coming up soon. We've all seen those ridiculous posts on neighborhood message boards, haven't we? People giving stuff away, people complaining about each other, people complaining about each other's pets. In Tara Conklin's new novel, Community Board, this neighborhood message board is Darcy Clipper's greatest comfort. Darcy is in self-imposed solitude after her husband leaves her for his skydiving instructor. And she relies on her neighbor's posts for connection and company. Community Board is the latest novel from the New York Times bestselling author of The Last Romantics. You may recall that The Last Romantics was the inaugural read with Jenna Pick. Community Board is a wise, big-hearted novel about unplanned isolation and newly forged community, both online and IRL. That's Community Board by Tara Conklin on sale March 28th from Mariner Books. So the Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode, more than 800 and counting, all of it is available free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. I try to make this podcast as widely and as freely available as possible. I don't want paywalls. You don't want paywalls. All of that kind of stuff is annoying. But in exchange, what I'm counting on is I'm counting on regular listeners, people who really love this show, people who get something from it, people who learn from it, people who love literary culture and simply want to support it and help perpetuate it. I'm counting on these kinds of people. Maybe you're one of them to support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL 
pod, just a dollar a month. I've tried to make it as painless and as easy as possible, something you don't even have to think about. It's a sliding scale, one dollar, three, five, ten, twenty, whatever you can afford. And as you move up the scale, there is merchandise, t-shirts, tote bag, coffee mug, book club subscription, and so on and so forth over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to receive my once a week email newsletter, you can sign up for that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you don't mind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this show wherever you listen to this show. It helps new listeners find this show. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at otherppl. And you can also watch the show on the Other People YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. It's free. If you have feedback for me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. So my guest, again, is Gina Frangello, author of many books, including Blow Your House Down, most recently, the uh, critically acclaimed memoir. Gina is a co-founder of Circe Consulting. She is a college instructor. She is an editor. She is all of these things. And I'm very excited to have her back here on the program to teach all of us about point of view and, in particular, the editorial omniscient POV. So let's get to it. This is my conversation with Gina Frangello. First of all, there is an issue with the fact that a lot of creative writing classes no longer really teach craft books per se, like traditional craft books that break down the nuts and bolts of writing, but may teach more like, you know, a book of interviews with writers or a book of essays about writing. And that's all awesome because a lot of the craft books are in fact quite dull, but it can result in kind of skipping over um, some of the basic nuts and bolts of, of craft. And so point of view, I think there's a lot of assumption on the part of people who are teaching creative writing that a lot of people are defaulting to first person point of view because it's what they know how to do. And second and third person points of view are sometimes just not taught. So we have a lot of people who might confuse direct address. Like if I'm writing a book that almost feels like an epistolary letter if I'm saying, you know, when you said to me out at the car that, you know, and they'll think that that's second person instead of a, a direct address. Second person, of course, is like, you get up, you walk down the street, you go to the bodega, you buy coffee, like, and you are the, are, are essentially implicated in the story. Um, there's a great quote I don't know who it's attributed to essentially saying that the second person is a first person that feels guilty about itself. <laughs> so I love that. And then within third person, we have third person objective, which is almost never used. Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants is the kind of like example that is most commonly given of that because there's no editorializing at all, no emotions of the characters, no perspective of the narrator. It's like reportage. And then third person limited omniscient is the most popular and widely used form of third person. And limited omniscient basically means that you are only in the character's point of view. Now you may be in six different characters' points of view over the course of your novel. But when you're in a character's point of view, 
you never know anything other than what that character would know or have access to. And in that way, it's exactly the same as first person. And so then there's the third person editorial omniscient in which the narrator effectively is the author, or it can be maybe another character in the book who has omniscience for some reason, such as in the lovely bones when, you know, when a character is dead, like that character could have omniscience, even if she weren't in first person. So the narrator of the book is not necessarily the same in third person editorial omniscient as the protagonist. And I use Milan Kundera as an example of that a lot because Milan Kundera is always except in his first book, The Joke, always the narrator of all his books. And in most of them, he is not a character. He's only a character in, a, in two rare instances. So the editorial omniscient is really, I think, very underutilized and underdiscussed in the United States compared to other, you know, other nations' literature. Why, why um, do you, it, wait, why do you think that is? I'm curious. Well, I actually don't know, Brad. I don't know why it is. I do know that it's not particularly well taught or given much time even in the traditional craft books in the United States, but I don't know how that may differ from, you know, what's taught in other countries. What I do think, though, is that um, we in this country definitely, particularly in literary fiction, believe very strongly in not hammering home an agenda, whereas in some countries, like the author's political messaging may be part you know, part of the point of their novel. So that kind of slightly different philosophy may be one of the reasons. But from my perspective, editorial omniscient doesn't have to be hammering home a heavy-handed political agenda. It doesn't have to mean that your book is didactic or anything like that. It just means that your perspective can move outside of what the individual characters know. Okay. So when we are writers and we are beginning a project and we're trying to determine which POV we should use, like what kinds of questions should we, we be asking ourselves? Whether it's first person, second person, third person, limited omniscient, third person, editorial omniscient, like all these different options at our disposal, there's got to be a process that we go through. And I think right. if I'm being honest, some of it's intuitive, some of it's just what feels right. But if you wanted to make it explicit and you wanted to ask yourself some good questions about POV that would lead you to making an effective choice, what would those questions maybe be? So I'm going to hold up Janet Burroway's Writing Fiction, A Guide to Narrative Craft. It is a book I use a lot in teaching undergrads. And she says the key questions to ask regarding point of view is who speaks to whom in what form? And to that, I would add why, because I think that the why can kind of add a little bit of, of texture in terms of, you know, what are we doing with our book in terms of, of our audience? Like, who do we imagine our audience to be and what's the best way to convey the story to them? So when we're doing first person, we can do direct address to our audience in the form of our first person narrator, if we feel like it, I mean, like think about Holden Caulfield or something like that, but we 
we often don't think of third person as being able to do that. But if you're in third person editorial omniscient, you absolutely can do that. You can break form as often as you like. You can talk to the reader. You can talk about the future. You can talk about the past. You can reveal things that the characters don't know. Okay. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And so, who speaks? I guess you're deciding how many different people you want to have speaking. If it's first person, then there's just one person speaking. That's right. right, unless it's alternating, but yes. Okay. Uh, second person would be? It, second person is always only one you if the book is uniformly in second person. the Really, I almost would say the narrator is the you um, because it, there's not a traditional narrator in second person, but, you know, it's always the one main character doing the action and it's being directed at you, the reader to implicate you essentially to put you behind the eyes of that character of that protagonist. And I, there's not a ton of books written in this way. I think bright lights, big city is the one that yeah, I there always... was a, a big slew of them in the eighties. Um, my husband, Robert Berge's memoir liar is written in second person and Paul Oster also wrote a memoir in second person. So we think of it as strictly a fictional perspective, but that's not even always true, but it came to a lot of prominence in the eighties. And then I would say for a good 20 years, people were like, I won't even look at anything in the second person because it became so trendy. But that's sort of ridiculous because we would never say that about either first or third person. So I think it's gotten a little bit of a bum rap in, yeah. in critical circles. Why are they picking on second person? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It's uh, it's an interesting mode to be in when you're writing memoir. Because Absolutely. It's, I, like the, I like the idea of that because then it's like you feel the writer sort of talking to herself or talking to himself. Yes. It's like, well, in, in Rob's case, he's kind of telling himself the story of his own life because a, a lot of the book deals with things like issues of memory, bipolar, history of addiction, head injuries, things like this. So the the writer has a fear of losing his memory, losing time. And so he's telling himself the story of his own life. Now, a lot of fiction writers and memoir writers also just use it to sort of make the reader feel whatever discomfort or tension the protagonist feels because it's sort of like you are the protagonist, you, the reader are now we're all going to suspend disbelief and pretend that you are the protagonist. So you're being told that you do these things and there you are, you're now you're doing them. Okay. And so, and Rob Roberge, what's the name of the memoir again? Let's it's plug called this. Liar. It was um, published by Crown in 2016. Okay. And then we get to third person. And I feel like in third person, 
you have more options. It feels like it branches yeah. out a little bit more. Absolutely. And in this case, it's like third person limited where you have a single protagonist. Yes. Like, uh, are... Well, well. so third person limited, this is, I think, probably the biggest mistake that I see my students making even at like MFA levels is, um, is that people will mistake if they have multiple third person points of view, they'll think that they're writing editorial omniscient because they changed point of view. But that is still limited if we're still just like each character who speaks has their blinders on and they can only feel or know what they feel or know. I mean, I don't recommend this, but there could be 30 of them in the book and that wouldn't make it editorial omniscient. Editorial omniscience implies that there is a consciousness, a, narr a narrator in the book that knows more, who knows more than the characters do and is kind of pulling the strings of the book. Okay. And then it, like, and then uh, Burroway says, in what form? What does that mean? So it, in what form literally means uh, in what point of view? Oh, okay. Okay. So that's the POV question, like explicit. And then why? And I think the why is maybe the most interesting question because, you know, like I said earlier, I think a lot of POV decisions made even by experienced writers are sort of made intuitively and maybe not mm -hmm. a whole lot of thought is given to why certain right. choices are made. For example, so this is not on the topic of editorial omniscient, but I find it really interesting. One of my former professors and now just close friend, Chris Mazza, writes a lot about how we often default to first person because it feels intimate, because it feels natural, right? A lot of people like to write in first person. But if you're not writing a memoir, so if you're writing a memoir, we all know it's you, the author, writing a memoir, your first person has a reason. But that in fiction, we often write in first person, but we don't actually think about like, well, what does it mean that this person is essentially narrating their life and behavior? Is it a written document? Is it, you know, what what are they doing, right? And, and Chris feels pretty strongly that there should be a reason that we would be narrating or in our own heads or in writing, like that the book exists, that there is a, a book being written or a story being told orally, and that otherwise first person essentially doesn't make a lot of sense in, in fiction. I don't go that far at all, and I've written in first pl person plenty of times in fiction, but I do think it's a great opportunity if we look at something like Doctorow's Book of book of Daniel, we've got Daniel is pretending he's writing a, a PhD thesis, but his PhD thesis keeps going rogue and talking about his own life and the life of his parents. In my debut novel, the first person narration- Which is, which is called- it's called My Sister's Continent, okay. um, and it, it was published in 2006 by Lydia Yuknevich's Old Press Chiasmus. And so in that book, the, the narrator, Kirby, is writing a rebuttal to a case study that a psychiatrist wrote about her family. And so there's she's literally writing the book as a rebuttal. So in first person, like that why would often be like, well, why is this person saying I went down to the store and I bought the gallon like who, who are they talking to right and 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 why are they doing that talking so we don't have to do that many great books in first person have not really answered that question but it can be fun to answer that question and it's a fun way of like considering form 
Do you feel like there is, I mean, I guess the, the crux of our conversation today is going to be to explore the editorial omniscient, mostly I think because it's poorly understood in your right, view. Right. But I'm just wondering, as a matter of opinion, if you feel like there is a superior POV. Is, is editorial mm. omniscient the one that you think is best or is it just per project? No, I think it's per project and, and, and per writer. I mean, I think writers, the best point of view is, is what you do best. Right. You know, but I do think that more people would do editorial omniscient if they understood it better because it's crazy fun. It does allow you to do a lot of experimenting with form, with storytelling, with where we are, with what vantage point, with issues of reliability and contrasting, you know, perhaps authorial perspective with character perspective. Like there's just so much, so many fun things you can do with it. And yet people rarely think to use it. Um, Burroway calls it the hardest of, of the points of view to master. But, you know, if you read a, a bunch of books that are written in it, I, I think people can definitely do it. It's not really that hard. It's just underutilized. Is the book, like the Kundera's book uh, novel, it's called The Book of Laughter and Forgetting. It's been so long since I've read it, but is that in editorial omniscient? So um, certain parts of it are, there is, in fact, I'm going to try to tell you what exact the piece is called so in in the book of laughter and forgetting there is a protagonist named tamina who kandera writes about a couple of times in that book and those sections in particular are in third person editorial omniscient in fact Kandera foreshadows what he later does in Immortality, the last book that he wrote in, in his native Czech before he start, started writing in French. He foreshadows what he does in Immortality by actually making himself a first-person character within a larger story that is written in editorial omniscience by him. It, it, and the secondary storyline is even surrealist. So it's completely different from his first person narration. It's like a, just a crazy section of the book. And, um, oh, by the end of this, I will, I will have remembered what that particular section in, in, oh, it's called angels. It's called in the book. It's called angels. It's, it's called angels. Yeah. In, in the book of laughter and forgetting. You know, the reason I ask is because I'm like, as we're talking about this, I'm remembering that when I was working on my first novel and struggling I read Kundera and I didn't end up writing. I ended up writing my first novel in the first person. That's sort of the, my go-to, I guess. That's what my books have been so far. And at the same time, what I remember from it is how liberating it was to read uh, his work. And I think what it opened up in me is yeah, the sense yeah. of play. Absolutely. That's what I recall from it. It was like, oh, this is fun. Like, there are no rules. Like, that was kind of the sense. It was liberating to read it. Kandera breaks the novel constantly, and he's really fallen out of favor with contemporary readers because he's a sexist pig, and also because <laughs> it came to light that he may have reported on some friends when he was still, you know, basically prior to his exile, that he may not have been the good guy and, like, fighting, you know, fighting the communists and so forth as he portrayed in his books and in life. And so, you know, he, he came to a bit of disgrace or 
fell a bit out of favor. But I still believe that he should be very widely read because he is a master of this form. And his books, I mean, they're still formally innovative, even by the standards of today. And so I think like if we can separate, you know, kind of the author from the craft, you know, I feel like everyone should still be reading Kandera the way that it was more true in the 80s and 90s. Okay. And so before we go any further, just for listeners so we can make sure to keep people oriented, let's define editorial yes. omniscient again, maybe. Let's let's go into it and just slow down and like give them a clear idea of what exactly that means. I'm going to give Burroway's definition so that I don't kind of go off... <laughs> track and talk for for 20 minutes on this but burway has breaks it down she says you can objectively report what's happening i'm gonna talk more about this myth of objectivity later um you can go into the mind of any character you can interpret for us that character's appearance speech actions thoughts even if the character himself is unaware of those things you can move freely in time and space to give us a panoramic, telescopic, microscopic, or historical view. You can tell us what happened elsewhere or in the past or what will happen in the future. Like little did Brad know that as he was having, you know, this struggle, meanwhile, a relative he doesn't know exists in Hungary is doing X, you know? So is informing, is informing on his (laughs) friends. Exactly. So, you know, or, For example, like Brad didn't realize that when he was born, his mother thought, you know, I mean, so it can do anything it wants. And and that's why it's just, I mean, if you like to play, you know, on the page, if you like to play with language, like it's really intoxicating. And then finally, the the final point here that is said in craft books is that it provides general reflections judgments and truths. And so here I want to say that I'm asterisking truths just like objectivity, because I think that one of the reasons people maybe don't embrace editorial omniscience as much as they otherwise would is that kind of like our old white masters of craft, you know, like the John Gardners and so forth, really do equate this point of view with like the writer is God and gets to kind of pronounce what is true, gets to be objective and, and, and wiser, almost like, you know, above the characters. And that can seem very unpalatable to a lot of contemporary writers. Like I'm not above my characters and I don't want my reader to think I am. And I don't want my reader to feel above my characters. Like we're all in the, you know, sticky, messy brew together. But I think that more contemporary practitioners of editorial omniscience understand that and they're not using it because they think that they're imparting wisdom or educating or, or, you know, pronouncing truths from on high. And they realize that the author is just as biased as any character the author can possibly create. We're all always biased and we all know only what we know and we're all only in our own heads and skin. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it strikes me like what I was thinking in my head as you were describing it as like maximum creative liberty. There's nothing wrong with being an artist and wanting maximum creative liberty, is there? I mean, 
that that's what it gives you this point of view but with great freedom comes great responsibility <laughs> as they say right i mean really though cuz like it's a, you know once you i think maybe the the challenge and part of the reason why people might retreat from it in addition to the reasons you just described like not wanting to seem above their characters is that it might be harder to control. Yes. You know, it's like it can get unwieldy if it, because you have so many different possibilities. It can. It can get unwieldy. And often an author may also feel like, well, you know, yeah, that all sounds fun, but I don't actually want to be in my book. You know, I'm, I'm writing my book and let's face it, everybody knows I'm writing my book, even if it's fiction, there's my name on the cover or on this or the story, but it doesn't only have to be the author who is speaking in editorial omniscience. For example, in in my book, A Life in Men, my third book of fiction, the whole thing is narrated by the one of the two protagonists, Nick's, but it's narrated by a Nick's who's already dead. And the Nick's who's in the book is spoken about in third person. And so, you know, so you can do things like that. And and I I do did mention to you when we were kind of prepping for this, like the book thief is narrated literally by death, right? And so death would know everything. And so it doesn't have to be the author. Like if you're Kandera and you're like, wow, I cannot wait to tell everybody what I think about literally every single thing. You want to hear my thoughts on Eternal Return? You want to hear all my thoughts on classical music until your eyes bleed? Like if you're Kandera, you're like, yes, like give me that. But people can use it in other ways. Um, They can, you know, for example, I mean, even I'm imagining it could be used in genre fiction if a character were something like clairvoyant or had you know, the ability to see things that other people can't see. I mean, you can use it in all kinds of ways. The dog can know everything, you know, I mean. Well, speaking of the dog knowing everything, I I was going to say that, you know, for writers who might be considering this and thinking to themselves like, yeah, I don't know if readers really want that, contemporary readers really want that. Like a, a, a good argument to make in favor, or at least in favor of the possibility, is the fact that as readers, all of us, as recipients of story, uh, any kind of like you know written narrative, I guess in particular, we're hardwired for this because children's books are yes. so often written in this mode. That's, the way that yes. stories are handed, da- yeah, the way that stories are handed down to us when we're kids, it, often employ this. Once upon POV. a time, right? Yeah. Here's who's who's talking to whom, why, right? And so it's very very traditional. Old stories are often in that kind of third-person editorial omniscient perspective. Also, I mean, while I kind of hate to mention her in the moment, but like J.K. Rowling, for example, starts the um, Harry Potter series that way. There's this line very early in the book, the Dursleys were the worst kind of muggles. You know, who's saying that? It's not Harry's perspective. He doesn't even know what a muggle is yet at that time. And so, you know, we see this a lot in books for, for kids and for you know, kind of lower level YA um, in, in, you know, more mature YA, it's almost always first person. But yeah, in, it's really still quite popular in certain forms of storytelling and less so in contemporary adult fiction. It seems like it would be maybe a, a POV that would have been popular in oral storytelling traditions. Yeah. Like if you wanted to really like trace it back to its roots. And then at the same time, I think the second person 
would be a rare oral storytelling POV. I'm picturing like a caveman, like hopped up on some sort of primitive amphetamine, <laughs> like telling his friends a story in the second person. <laughs> so you have a spear in your hand, you know? Yes. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, some people who do write in it for people who are like, well, all right, I, maybe I don't want to read Kandera or I tried to read Kandera and simply because of like all the things he pontificates about, I didn't really dig him, but Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walters written in editorial omniscient and white teeth is written in editorial. Yes. Is written in, in editorial omniscient. Um, so there are many contemporary practitioners of it who are using it really differently than the way Kandera uses it. Okay. And so let's give people an example. I think this is a good time to have you read from some some good work written in editorial omniscience so people can hear it and get a sense of what it feels like. Okay, so The Hitchhiking Game is a short story by Kandera. And so here's just some quick and dirty examples of it. So the story is kind of like a tennis match or a chess game between two people, uh, a man and a woman who are dating and who are on a holiday and it's the first day of their holiday and they start playing this game in which she's pretending to be a hitchhiker and he's pretending he picked her up and it turns into this epic kind of power struggle between them. So here's one example. Still driving, the young man put his arm around the girl's shoulders and kissed her gently on the forehead. He knew that she loved him and that she was jealous. Jealousy isn't a pleasant quality, but if it isn't overdone, and if it's combined with modesty, apart from its inconvenience, there's even something touching about it. At least that's what the young man thought. Because he was only 28, it seemed to him that he was old and knew everything that a man could know about women. So there we have that, right? I mean, this is obviously not what the young man is thinking about himself. Like, well, because I'm 28... It seems to me that I know everything there. You know, like he's not saying that. That's Kadera speaking. And another example from that same story. Um, and here's where you can see how here is a great example, Brad, of how objectivity and truth need to be put in quotation marks. And so I love this example. The girl's pitiful jealousy, however, left her as quickly as it had come over her. After all, she was sensible and knew perfectly well that this was merely a game. Now it even struck her as a little ridiculous that she had repulsed her man out of a jealous rage. It wouldn't be pleasant for her if he found out why she had done it. Fortunately, women have the miraculous ability to change the meaning of their actions after the event. Using this ability, she decided that she had repulsed him not out of anger, but so she could go on with the game, which with its whimsicality so well suited the first day of their vacation. So we see here, I mean, we've got our author is telling us that women possess the magical ability, you know, okay, like old white check man, if you say so, you know, but, you know, it's it's still fun. Like he doesn't have to be right for it to work. Like now we're like, sort of like, Oh, you stepped out from behind the curtain. I know what you think, you know, and and that actually informs the whole rest of the story in ways that can be kind of fascinating. Yeah, for sure. It's funny to think about the stepping out from behind the curtain and what a writer in a particular time feels comfortable saying and I guess I'm just wondering in contemporary times, I'm sure stuff like that still happens, but it, it seems like time, it seems like times have certainly changed, right? Yes, I mean, hopes. it's not, yeah, it's not as easy 
as it used to be. And yet I think it would be a fallacy to imagine that similar mistakes and errors in judgment aren't still being made in new ways. Of course, you know what I'm of saying? Course. Well, I mean, we always have, you know, we always have that. Obviously, every book is a product of its time. And even books that, you know, I mean, if we look at someone like Faulkner, right, who in his day was considered to be like pretty radical and and advanced in his views, like very progressive and advanced in his views. And we read him now, we're like, ah, you know, I mean, so of course we're all, we're all products of, of our day, but it's important to note here with, in terms of editorial omniscience, like not all editorial omniscience is necessarily being used in the ways that Kandera uses it because Kandera is a profoundly philosophical writer. Like his, his books are almost like hybrid philosophical texts, right? And his characters are representative of particular philosophies or types or ways of being that he enumerates on in, in the book. Obviously, the way that we use third-person editorial omniscient does not have to be that way. So, for example, Tobias Wolff uses it in Bullet in the Brain in a completely, completely different way. Okay. And you know what I was thinking when you were reading is uh, the word speed was coming to mind for me because that was, it was that scene where the, the 28 year old man puts his arm around the girl and kisses her on the forehead. And then suddenly you just in the next line, almost you're zooming back out yes. to this like really high vantage point And the author is kind of intruding mm-hmm. or, you know what I'm saying? Authorial intrusion. And, yes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, but it happens that quickly. Like you can be in uh, like kind of close confines with these characters and inside of their minds. And then you can zoom out quickly and then zoom back in. And it's that level of freedom. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm glad you said that because it reminded me that I think some people also think that if they're writing an editorial omniscient, it's like they have to have this once upon a time, like that they have to maintain that throughout the entire text. And I certainly, for one, can see where that would be like horrifying. Like if I wanted to write in that way, I, I probably wouldn't be writing fiction or, or et cetera. We want to get really into the character's perspective. We want to feel what the character feels. We want to get really close behind the character's eye. But that these things are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to write the entire book from the vantage point of this editorial omniscient consciousness you can zoom in and out and that's part of the fun it's part of the play yeah i mean i feel like as a reading experience it's fun i mean forget about writing it i think for the reader when it's done well there's maybe like a greater sense of velocity or motion than you might otherwise get or something i don't know i don't even know exactly how to describe how it works on you as a reader but velocity comes closest if you know if somebody's really zooming in and out in that way and kind of making the most of the POV. Right. And so in speaking of making the most of it, like let's talk about some of the things expl- you know explicitly that you can do as a writer. Just so people listening are you know are keeping up. Uh, we've defined what it is and now it's like what exactly can this thing do? Well, so in in the sense that like of what I was talking about before, in every other point of view, like every other point of view there is we only can know what the character knows, right? And so, I mean, the biggest thing that I think it can do is it can take you outside of what the character knows and give you other information so that the reader 
kind of has the ability to paint a wider picture. So, you know, in that sense, like limited third person omniscient, so limited omniscient, the most common thing is that we only know what the character knows. In fact, we can be so close to the character that really the he, she, they could be replaced with I. Like we we could just do a search and find. And for that reason, I often tell my students that if you're in a third, like a close third, you don't even need to write things like Mary thought, like who else would be thinking it? Like if we're that close, you know, we just, just present the thought and we know who's thinking it just like we would in first, right? So most people, if they're not like really an amateur writer will know that they don't need to write. I thought to myself that if they're in first person, because obviously if they present a thought, they're thinking it because it's first person. So in third person, there's a larger consciousness in the piece. And that larger consciousness, it can be the author. It can be another character. And, and, by, and by that, you mean like for like the example of your book where the, the character is dead, narrating and commenting on the living versions. Yeah, uh, in a sense. Okay, so here, I'll actually read you like a little tiny bit from that. Like, all right, so this is very near the end of the book, but this is an old book that was published in 2014, so I'm going to assume it's fine to give spoilers. There's just a paragraph that goes, On September 11th, 2001, all over the world, people went about their ordinary business of being born and dying. Time waits for no media loop. Mere hours before the towers fell, before Hasnain's flight was grounded, in a Johannesburg hospital, Joshua's wife, Kaya, gave birth to their third child. At daybreak in Columbus, Eli woke stiff on a plastic couch in Diane's room on the oncology ward, her breasts now part of a long past they shared and would never see again. In the twilight of peacetime America, Kenneth stood on the manicured lawn of an affluent northern Atlanta suburb and summoned the courage to ring a doorbell, unaware that by November, his son would be deployed to Afghanistan. In Kinetro, Gabriella raced to help her aging mother to the toilet, while in their new home in Santa Fe, Daniel and Esther slept through a ringing phone, having debated in hushed tones late into the night about whether to comply with Esther's sister's wishes and send their 13-year-old son to live with her in Spain. So it happened that when their son that their son was the one to take the call from his middle-aged, not-quite-brothers, Leo's boyfriend, Sonder, phoning from Marrakesh to report that Daniel's biological daughter, Mary Rebecca Grace, had died in the arms of her husband, her mother, and brother gathered bedside. And so that is actually how the news of Mary, our protagonist's death, is conveyed, by flashing to pretty much every major character in the book and telling what they're doing at the time of her death. And in that way, I, I didn't want to write a death scene. I didn't want to. I feel like they can be extremely cliche, particularly if it's the death of a young, attractive woman, right? And so I I just shifted instead. And like I left her still alive with her husband, Jeff, having just arrived at the hospital in, in Marrakesh. And this is you know, how we now catch up with the characters who have appeared over this 13 year time span that the book covers and they've gone in and out of her life. And here we find out what they're all doing. And in fact, what they will be doing soon, we find out that one of the main characters' sons is going to be deployed to Afghanistan in a time that stretches beyond the 
the frame of the book. And then we find out Mary's dead, you know, so it's like you can you can play in ways that you couldn't otherwise. Mary wouldn't have known what happened to any of these people, but the reader can find out. Well, and you're zipping all over the globe. I mean, that was the sensation I had listening to it as I felt like I was... You right. Know, the book takes tra- place in 10 countries. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly okay. what you're doing. <laughs> so you're traveling at high speeds. And so when we talk about what editorial omniscient POV can do, well, that's one example. But just to break it down, you can objectively, as the author, report what is happening from on high, essentially, mm-hmm. and asterisk next to the word objectively. Right. <laughs> and then you can get into the mind of any character. Mm-hmm. Like nothing is off limits. Nothing's off limits. And you can be as close as you would be in a close third or even in first. It doesn't prohibit intimacy or I would want nothing to do with it. And and it can shift like line like line by line, paragraph by paragraph. Like there's just no rules. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> true. I mean, I think when we're first starting it, we probably are better off not to be, you know, switching at kind of like the rapid speed that Kundera sometimes does. It can get a bit confusing. Like, wait, who's who's thinking that? Was that the author? Was that the character? Particularly if we have points of view of more than one character, as in the hitchhiking game, we have both the boyfriend and the girlfriend's point of view, you know, so and then sometimes Kundera. So it could really be like you're watching a tennis match and then suddenly it's like, woo, whiplash, you know, but but if you're doing it well, the reader can't help but zero in on it. And um, it's sort of like, so in Bullet in the Brain, which is a a story I teach a lot. This is the Tobias Wolf. Yes, exactly. Like um, Tobias Wolf doesn't use it to give his own ideas at all. He doesn't use it the same way Kundera does. Instead, he uses it strictly to kind of convey what his protagonist, Anders, does not know. And so we get a signal in line one. He's talking about Anders. Uh, you know, Anders couldn't get to the bank until just before it closed. And then just, it, it's like line three or something. He says, he was never in the best of tempers anyway, Anders. And so it's like, oh, wait, who's saying that? I don't think it's Anders. He just referred to himself by name, you know? So so we get this clue right up front. Oh, someone else is here. Someone else is in the room with us. Like, but, but I feel like when it's done well, it that doesn't even occur to you as a reader. That, it, it, it's it's very seamless. It's very seamless, you know, and, and yet if you know about what editorial omniscience is, you are immediately going to be like, oh, okay, I'm not behind Anders' eyes in this. And, and then he uses it towards, he doesn't, he barely uses it again until we get to the end of the piece after... Anders has been shot in the head, hence bullet in the, the brain. <laughs> um, and he does this amazing, he does, well, he does an amazing thing that's way too long for me to, to spend reading to you all. But um, I'm just going to read like a sentence of each. Like he does this one where he talks about literally, you're almost at the point of view of the bullet. The bullet smashed Anders' skull and plowed through his brain and exited behind his right ear, shattering shards of bone into the cerebral cortex, the corpus callosum, back towards the basal ganglia, down into the thalamus. And so it's like, Anders doesn't know that, right? That's just like, we're getting almost like a forensic report that goes on for like a paragraph about what the bullet is doing. And then Wolf says, it is worth noting what Anders did not remember, given what he did remember. And then for three paragraphs, he goes on like, 
he did not remember his first lover, Sherry, or what she had, or what he had most madly loved about her before it came to irritate him. Like it, etc. He does this for three paragraphs. Nor did Anders remember seeing a woman leap to her death from the building opposite his own just days after his daughter was born. He did not remember shouting, "Lord have mercy!" You know, and so so he's all like, he's this, like, wait, he's cataloging like this guy's lost memories. Yes, he's because basically it's like you know. On his, well, he says right here, he says, once in the brain, that is, the bullet came under the mediation of brain time, which gave Anders plenty of leisure to contemplate the scene that, in a phrase he would have abhorred, passed before his eyes. And so before we get what passes before Anders' eyes, which is stunningly beautiful and why this story is so famous, we get all these things he doesn't remember that give us a picture of his entire life. Like this story is something like four pages long. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what this story is able to give us in four pages. Wow. Okay. It's making me think of all the memories. Cause I have, I, I always bitch about how bad my memory is on this show. And I'm like, well, if somebody, if somebody ever puts a bullet in my brain, there's going to be a lot to catalog. <laughs> well, well, someone will have to be transcribing all the things you don't remember because those are often more interesting than the things you do, right? I mean, listen, if you if a character can forget that uh, he saw a woman jump off a building, I mean, like God, God only knows you know, what people are forgetting. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. But So we talk about being able to go into the mind of any character or even to go into the mind of an inanimate object, quote unquote. You know, you have that liberty as well. And then this isn't the next thing that uh, editorial omniscient allows the author to do, which I think is a little bit subtler, but no less important, is at the level of interpretation. Mm-hmm. So you can, as the author, interpret the character's speech, thoughts, actions, appearance, even if the character herself is unaware. Right, right. So, for example, in that scene in Silence of the Lambs where Clarice goes and and meets Hannibal Lecter. I hope I'm getting her name right. I'm not, I never read the books, but, and he immediately starts talking about like how he knows her background from looking at her shoes. If you were writing an editorial omniscience, you could, for example, show her picking her wardrobe that day and what she thinks that she's conveying about herself. And then you could actually just drop deeper and, you know, no Hannibal Lecter needed, which would be great. You know, you can, you can say what, what she's actually conveying about herself. Right. And, and you're going to, 
display your own bias and saying that if you're like Hannibal Lecter and you come from this more affluent and, and, you know, like high class background or something, or, or, you know, how to move in those circles, you may be saying, well, what she didn't realize was, you know, so, so we can always, we can always kind of present the difference between what the character is thinking versus what is maybe actually happening. And then we get that sort of extra layer of like awesome fun of like, why did we pick that to say? Like, why does Kadera pick, you know, women can miraculously change the meaning of events, you know, once they've occurred. That's important to him for whatever reason to convey. Like that really, <laughs> that means something to Kadera. And so we're constantly in a sense, like betraying what's important to us to convey in our stories. And, um, I don't know. I dig that. Instead of thinking that that's terrifying, which maybe it could be, I also just think it's like it's kind of awesome because we all do pick to tell certain stories for a reason and we pick certain protagonists for a reason. And it gives us this chance to kind of get at like what we're trying to do without sitting there saying to the reader like what i want you to take away from this is you know what the point of this is but the other thing that you can do too that i think is really important to add and this is true of third person in general but that i think one of the things that people often lose when they're trying to do either really really close first person uh, third person where they're just always right behind the character's eyes or of course when they're doing first person is like, it's really hard to write about, say, a kid. Sometimes you just don't seem credible. You know, you're trying to write it the way a child would see it, but you're 40, you know, and and so you it, it's really hard to do that. But if you're writing from a more distanced third person, you're able to portray you know, what the child sees, does, thinks, says, but you don't have to be in the voice, in the mind of the child in order to do that. And similarly, you know, we could do it with somebody who doesn't have the ability to speak. We can do it with somebody, you know, who's just very, very different. Like, for example, if someone is in the throes of drug addiction and they're not thinking clearly, but we want to write about them, one of the ways people have chosen to do that is to write these almost kind of like incoherent dreamscape, you know, prose, but that's not for everyone. Right. So we can also do it from a greater distance and we can do that in first person too. If it's a retrospective, like Dennis Johnson's Jesus, son, like where we know by the end of the book that the character kind of gets out. And so he's, telling it in this sort of, you know, this voice that's very different from maybe what he would have had at certain points in the text. So there's more than one way to achieve things, but this is certainly one way that we can write about children. We can write about somebody, you know, who isn't necessarily in full possession of their faculties at the moment of the scene. And we don't have to try to make our prose reflect that in a way where maybe we don't have, you know, we're not going to be coherent. Yeah, I think like writing from the perspective of a child is a great example of when it's useful to use this POV. It kind of bring, takes the writer off the author off the hook, you know, to try to bridge that age gap and to be authentic. It gives you a better way in, I think, to come at it from like a, 
like this more omniscient perspective. And I think from a reading perspective, the fun of, of reading this POV on the page, or one of the reasons it's so fun when it's done well, is that there aren't as many blind spots. What I mean by that is you might, if you're in close third or close first, you know, you're confined to this character's POV and they might not have uh, a top of mind awareness for the reason they're doing the things they're doing, like wearing a certain pair of shoes or dressing a certain way for work. If we're going to continue with the silence of the lambs example and with this editorial omniscient POV, the author can kind of intrude and fill in that gap. It's also great for things like multi-generational sagas, because like we certainly can do that by just passing the baton of point of view, but in many like kind of epic sagas, having a through line of a consistent narrative voice that appears now and then can give the book a more holistic feeling like a, a, a you know, all one of a piece, even though the different generational characters may be super different from each other, may speak really differently, may think really differently. So it can kind of be a thread that holds things together when a book is really sprawling, say you're covering 50 years or say you're covering 500 years, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point too. I'm trying to think of an example of a, a sprawling multi-generational saga. Does, does Marquez write in this? I, I, what I was going to just say is that I'm pretty sure, I don't know, fantasy fans are going to like call you after this if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that the Lord of the Rings trilogy is written in, in this type of way. Yeah. I mean, you'd almost have to, a story like that with like maps and its own language. <laughs> you know, like, it seems like that would be the case. But uh, just to review what one can do with the editorial omniscient POV, we said you can objectively report what is happening asterisk next to objective you can get into the mind of any character you can interpret appearance speech actions thoughts even if the character herself or himself is unaware and then there's the issue which we have discussed earlier is this issue of time and space and the way that you can really move with velocity and give kind of like a panoramic or telescopic or even microscopic or historical view of what's going on so you have that freedom And then uh, I think the last thing is providing like the kind of general reflections or judgments on the action. And, and there we have to be aware that like they're not impartial, you know. Right. But I would add that like because you were talking about velocity and I think that the maybe like my final thought on what is so intoxicating about this is that we've all grown up, of course, you know, well, film's been around for a long time, but we all watch a lot of shows, right, on on TV, and some of the best writing is happening on TV right now. And third-person editorial omniscient is the closest that we can get to a camera, right? Like, the director says, pan out. And suddenly, like, we can see something that that character over here can't see, right? We can hear people talking about that character and that character doesn't know they're doing it. Like it's a bit like a camera lens in that sense, only it combines being a camera lens, which is more impartial and this fabulous, you know, fact that we as the narrator, whether we're another character in the book or whether we're ourselves, the author 
do have a point of view. We do have a perspective. We're not objective. So we're not a camera, but we can act like a camera. And so those things combined is just, I don't know. I feel like once you've done it, it's hard to go back. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds fun. <laughs> it sounds fun. It also sounds contemporary. And I, like, I think using that metaphor is probably going to be helpful to people because I think most people these days can imagine themselves as a camera. It seems like an easy leap since we always have one in our pocket, right? <laughs> so let's, uh, let's just uh, to review a little bit, but also just to make it crystal clear, let's distinguish editorial omniscient from other types of third person POV, just so that people have a completely clear understanding of what we're talking about. So third person objective, the least popular and least common does not give any emotions of anybody. You don't really have anybody's like inner workings. You're just reporting on like what can be seen. It's almost like you are hanging out right up here and reporting what people are saying and doing and there is no interior that's like um, that's like hills like white elephants hills like white elephants the is the master class in that in that um particular that point of view i teach that story a ton for that reason and you know also then third person limited omniscient which is by far the most widely used and that's basically just of course a third person where you're following a character's point of view and maybe another character's point of view and maybe four other characters point of view but there is no overarching narrative consciousness it's just whatever character's point of view you're in at the time he she they you know and and it's not that different from first even if you have more than one character's point of view that would just be like oscillating first person points of view which is a super common thing to do so then editorial omniscience does all the things we've been talking about in terms of it adds this extra layer like we can move outside of the individual's character's points of view. We can know things they don't know. We can interpret things they're not aware of about themselves. We can go back or forward in time, all of those additional layers. And yet we also can absolutely remain as intimate because we don't need to stay there. It's a lens that can move around. And so we can go right back behind somebody's eyes and continue as though nothing's ever happened you know so we can write in a 400 page novel editorial omniscience may rear its head 12 times you know and it doesn't need to be consistent it doesn't need to mean like you're telling this oh once upon a time and then they lived happily ever after like in this kind of distanced voice so you can do both and that's why it's exciting okay so i know that you want to go off on a tangent we talked about this prior to coming on online. And I want to give you an opportunity because there is a related (laughs) point I think you want to make. Yeah, no, absolutely. So basically like the author can have like different degrees of visibility or transparency, like in all third person points of view, the answer to the original question of who speaks is the author. I mean, if it's in third person, the author's always speaking, but essentially like, when we have this larger consciousness, I think what what's most exciting to me is the way this is this is just like this is I'm I geek out on this is the way that point of view can essentially 
circle all the way back around to third person editorial omniscient almost meeting first person. So we originally think of third person editorial omniscient as being as far away from first person as we can possibly get, right? First person is like, we only know one thing and and we're speaking like from our own first person. But if we have examples such as like Kandera, you know, where he introduces, I just will read one line and, and go on. If we have Kandera like say in the first two chapters of The Unbearable Lightness of Being, his most famous book, he's talking about eternal return. He's talking about Nietzsche. He's talking about all these things. And then he begins, I've been thinking about Tomas for many years, but only in the light of these reflections did I see him clearly. I saw him standing at the window of, of his flat, looking across the courtyard at the opposite walls, not knowing what to do. And so here we have like, here, and especially in Immortality, where Kandera is himself a character, we have a first-person narration. I was going to say, that's just first-person what you first just read. That's first-person, right? But then he slips back into third. And so, and he talks about Tomas and Teresa and Sabina and all the important characters of the book in third person. And every once in a while, he interjects. Now, I don't think we would have a lot of success arguing that the unbearable lightness of being is a first person novel. But if we take it further, such as Immortality, where Kandera himself is a character and he has this friend, Professor Avernarius, and, and then Professor Avernarius starts having an affair with one of the characters in the novel. And so then Kandera meets her at his health club in Paris, where all they seem to do is drink wine and occasionally swim. And, you know, then we are looking at this book and we're like, okay, this is editorial omniscient, but isn't editorial omniscient first person? So that's, that's a, and like, pardon me for kind of forgetting that because it's literally to me the most important and like fun and just crazy part of editorial omniscient is that if you take it far enough, you have circled all the way back around to first person. And it really does call into question for those who like to kind of like screw around with form for those who are like, I don't like to follow the rules. Like it really almost calls into question. Like what does point of view mean anyway? Like what is point of view? Like, is it permeable? Are there, you know, are they really also neatly delineated? If the thing that is furthest away from like, I, I only know what I know. And this thing that is like, according to John Gardner or Janet Burway, like you're playing God and oh, wait, it turns out these can be the same thing. And so it's like point of view becomes this snake eating its own tail. And that just like, that kills me. I love that. I mean, I feel like everybody should light a joint at this point in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a good place for us to, uh, well, I guess we're not completely done yet. But I mean, that is an interesting point. And, you know, the larger consciousness at work in editorial omniscient POV sometimes can reveal itself as I, but just so people listening are clear, that doesn't have to be the case. Mm -hmm. Sometimes right. it could be just like the kind of reportorial descriptions of action or interpretations of action. Other times the author could kind of show up or like yes. that, that, right. that other voice, you know, there's no I in bullet in the brain. You know, I mean, like we understand that the author is speaking to us about what Anders doesn't remember. But at no point is the author suddenly, you know, 
stepping out from behind the curtain and saying like, well, what I think is that what Anders really should not have talked back to those bank robbers. Like, you know, he, <laughs> he's not like suddenly a presence the way that Kandera, particularly as his writing goes on, um, kind of his triptych of great books on um, the book of laughter and forgetting and unbearable lightness and then immortality. Like I would say Kandera by the end of that time in immortality has pushed it enough that he literally he is the first person narrator of immortality, even though most sections of the book are narrated in what appears to be a third person. And and, and again, just so I'm clear, because I'm still, I'm, I feel a little confused. Like, why is it that that's first person? Like that when he's writing immortality, even though it's in third editorial omniscient, it feels like first person. And there's this kind of like this uh, snake eating its own tail effect. Like what is it specifically about that that creates that effect? So basically the author is telling you that he made these characters up. He's uh, talking about it actively in all three on, uh, in book of laughter and forgetting the example I was giving about Tamina and angels also in unbearable lightness of being i was thinking about tomas for many years but suddenly he came clear to me okay so in those cases we have these insertions of first person but in book of laughter and forgetting that may not be applicable to each piece it's it's sort of like a hybrid between a novel and a and a, and a collection it's a bit neither one most people consider it a novel but it's a weird novel because it's not all about the same people and in unbearable lightness Kadera does that only occasionally but in immortality he very explicitly tells you how he creates his protagonist agnes he gives you like he doesn't just give you a few lines he literally gives you like a whole section about how he's watching this woman of a certain age taking a swim lesson at his, you know, very wine enthusiast health club in Paris. And, um, <laughs> and he's, he watches her turn around and kind of coquettishly wave at her swim instructor. And it strikes him that this is the gesture of a much younger woman, which he finds comedic because he's a sexist pig, as we've already established. He thinks this is hilarious. Oh my God. This like 40 something year old woman just like gave this coquettish little wave. Anyway, he can barely contain himself from doubling over laughing, but then it makes him think how these gestures define us throughout our lives. And he starts thinking about gestures and then he go returns to that gesture. And he thinks about like who this gesture might be important to. And then he tells us actually, so he says, and then the word Agnes entered my my mind. Agnes, I had never known a woman by that name. And so then Agnes is born, right? And we proceed in the next chapter to start talking about Agnes's life. So we've had this long on-ramp into like Kandera having even conceived of Agnes. And so then we're reading about Agnes's life and okay, this is interesting. And then he'll interject and he'll start talking about Goethe and this woman Bettina with whom he exchanged letters and, and Kandera will give his opinions on these things. And then suddenly we see a narrative about Goethe and Bettina. And then we're back to Agnes and her husband, Paul and her sister, Laura. And then all of a sudden, Oh, now we're with Milan Kandera himself. This sort of, you know, replica of himself in the novel and he and his friend professor avernarius will have these conversations and he'll say oh i want to write this book called the unbearable lightness of being and and avernarius will say oh you already wrote that book and he'll say well it was a mistake i should have called this book 
the unbearable lightness <laughs> of being. And so then we're like, okay, you know, this is very, all very pobo. Isn't this fun? But then finally, near the end of the book, Kandera and Professor Avernarius are hanging out at their health club and they're drinking wine. And we find out that Professor Avernarius is now the lover of Laura, Agnes's younger sister. They're having this affair and, and Agnes is dead. And Laura is now married to Agnes's husband, Paul, but cheating on Paul with Professor Avernarius. And they're all there in the health club chatting. And Kadera is like, Laura didn't look exactly like I imagined her, you know? And, and so at this point, we're kind of like, dude, what's the point of view? Like, what, where, where are we, right? And so ultimately, I feel like in that novel, we have to kind of ultimately land on like the governing first person consciousness in this novel is Milan Kundera. Like he's written a first person novel in which he talks about other people he either is imagining and making up or who are historical figures he's fictionalizing. He talks about them in the third person because they're not him, but it's ultimately a novel in which like he's a character he speaks of himself in the first person. He meets his fictional characters. So it's like if you read book reviews of immortality, as I have done obsessively because I wrote about Kandera for the LA Review of Books a few years back, but people aren't really saying like, oh, this is a first person novel. But I think you can very much make an argument it is. And I think it's a little harder to make an argument that it isn't. Hmm. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And I think that uh, for people listening who want to like dive in and explore and kind of like experience it, which I think is the best way to maybe get a strong feel, you have, and excuse the police helicopter flying over my house right now. Oh, I can't hear it. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Oh, they're they're after me. But <laughs> I, I think that uh, you've mentioned the following books, Immortality by Kundera, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, the Book of Laughter and Forgetting, Bullet in the Brain, The Story by Tobias Wolf, White Teeth by Zadie Smith, like maybe The Lord of the Rings. But I'm just like, are there Beautiful any other- Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walters is a really like, I. that's a really good contemporary example. I mean, because so many people read that book and it uses editorial omniscience really, I mean, like throughout, but is also- this incredibly intimate look at, at, you know, at its characters. So it really moves in and out of being behind people's eyes and then being panoramic, like in a way that obviously did have huge appeal to contemporary readers, which we might be able to argue that like Kandera might come off as like pompous. He talks too much about his own personal interests. We may not like the fact that like he's, I don't know that I'd call him a misogynist. I think he really, he digs women, but he's definitely very sexist. Um, and, you know, so so he may have kind of like, he may be very dated as a storyteller in ways that like he might annoy readers as much as they learn from him. But Beautiful Ruins is a really great contemporary example. If you're like, okay, I'm not convinced I want to read Kandera, but I really want to see what's going on here. Like go read Beautiful Ruins. Okay, okay. Is there anything that we haven't gotten to that you wanted to get to. I feel like we've covered a lot. 
But if there's anything that you haven't said that you want to say, by all means. No, I think I would just probably return briefly to the idea that editorial omniscience is it's a state of mind in the novel and it doesn't actually require the omniscient presence to be the author. Because I do think that, you know, and in that case, I would definitely do something like Read the Book Thief, another wildly popular novel, you know, narrated by death. So it's not the author, like giving their opinions or talking about their characters. I think about, for example, the way that Jonathan Franzen occasionally introduces and then exits his novels as there being a, a sort of editorial omniscience that then drops away usually like in, in, in the middle, but I'm thinking of freedom, like our on ramp and our off ramp have a little editorial omniscience to them. And I've heard a lot of people say like that they feel like Francis looking down on his characters or like judging his characters or kind of, you know, putting himself in a, a superior position to his characters. And so some readers will feel like, if they as an author interject and say, for example, that they commented on the fact that Clarice's shoes aren't really conveying what she thinks they're conveying. They're like, Oh, so basically you're telling me to be an asshole in my book. Right. You know, (laughs) but, but you don't have to, you don't even have to be in your book to give, to have this kind of point of view. You can be death. You can be another character you can you know like I said you could be the dog and so it's not about you sitting around judging your characters like oh isn't it quaint that he was 28 and he thought he knew everything there was to know about women and he thinks he's so old but I the older author like I realize what a fool he is you know like you don't have to take that kind of tone you can still just kind of travel anywhere, know everything and have access to things the characters don't know without it being from a position of judgment or imparting wisdom. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm tempted to try this now. I'm also a little scared, but I think that's good. (laughs) (laughs) I I deeply appreciate the time and I like doing this just because it's an excuse to get to hang out with you and, and see Absolutely. you. It's, it's been a while. It's so good to see you. So yeah, for listeners um, who don't know, Gina and I have known each other for a long time. And A long time. <laughs> <laughs> like what? I think probably about 2007 or something like that. Like yeah. when I, I started writing for The Nervous Breakdown and then I we launched the fiction section. Right, right. I mean, God, ages ago. But uh, it's great to see you, and I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much once again. Thank you. Okay, you guys, there we go. That was my conversation with Gina Frangello about all things point of view. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that informative? Didn't you learn a lot? Gina Frangello, the editorial omniscient POV. Who knew? You can find Gina on the internet at ginafrangello.org. You can also check out the company that she co-founded with Emily Rapp Black at CirceConsulting.net. C-I-R-C-E Consulting.net. Check that out if you want manuscript consultation, creative coaching, what have you. Don't forget to read Gina's sensational memoir, Blow Your House Down, available from Counterpoint Press. Her novels include A Life in Men and Every Kind of Wanting. It is all out there waiting for you. She's a great writer. 
The Other People podcast is offered freely. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get some Other People merchandise, t-shirts, sweatshirts, just go to otherppl.com. You'll see it. There's a t-shirt. You click on it. It's easy. If you would like to sign up for the once a week email newsletter that I do, it's free. Sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you would be so kind to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast, I would appreciate that. You can watch the show on YouTube. The Other People YouTube channel is right there on YouTube. Subscribe. It's free. You can follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter, or all of the above. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. If you would like to email me, let me know what you think. The address is letters at OtherPPL.com. And if you would like to read my novel, my latest novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up next on The Other People Show, a conversation with Madeline Lucas, author of the novel Thirst for Salt, which is generating a lot of buzz right now. I'm excited about that one, so stay tuned. <laughs>